Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 142 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is security expert and futurist Mark Goodman. He has over 20 years' experience in law enforcement, working with organizations such as Interpol, the UN, NATO, LAPD, and the U.S. government. He's also the founder of the Future Crimes Institute and an advisor for Singularity University. His new book is called Future Crimes, Everything is Connected, Everyone is Vulnerable, and What We Can Do About It. And now, here's our interview with Mark Goodman. All right, so we're here with Mark Goodman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, so your new book is called Future Crimes. So just tell us a bit about how this book came about. Well, I've worked in high-tech crime investigation for many, many years, and I've watched the flow of technology and the pace of Moore's Law, and I've been fascinated by how they do underworld innovation, how criminals are focused on all these next-generation technologies. And I wanted to write a book explaining what's going on in the digital underground to folks so that they can learn more about what's happening and therefore how to protect themselves their families, their businesses, and the country. Yeah, and so you say the book is called Future Crimes, but a a lot of the stuff you talk about in the book is actually happening already. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, you know, when you talk about it, it it depends on the audience, right? For some folks, the idea of hacking drones will be, well, of course they're hacking drones. They'll be very well-versed in it, and perhaps that's the wired audience will know about all these things. But for the general public, they may have no idea that People are hacking robots. They're using AI to script, you know, denial of service attacks. And uh, people are already messing around with synthetic biology for, uh, you know, bio attacks. So it just depends on the audience. Yeah. And I mean, I like to think that I'm pretty up on this sort of stuff. But I I was frankly shocked by a lot of the things that I discovered reading this book. Uh, So I think definitely anyone listening to this is probably going to learn, you know, uh, some, some things they definitely didn't know before. There is a tremendous amount going on out there that truly is at the cutting edge of science. And the fact that criminal organizations are funding research and development programs into science and technology would be a surprise. The fact that, you know, some of the Colombian narco cartels have $5 million R&D budgets for robotics, you know, just as one example, so they can do, you know, unmanned uh, submarines and uh, drone development. The fact that narcos in Mexico are going to colleges of aeronautical engineering to hire drone engineers um, would be a surprise to people. So everything from AI to synthetic biology to robotics to big data, Internet of Things, uh, you know, crooks and terrorists, rogue governments and corporations are all over and trying to exploit this technology to the detriment of the general public. Yeah, yeah. And so now another thing that kind of surprised me reading this book is that it's a book about criminals, but you start out talking about companies like Facebook and Google. So why did you start off this book about crime, talking about these presumably legal uh, companies? <laughs> presumably legal. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is, is that I, because of my own background in law enforcement, was very much intent on writing a book on crime, criminals, terrorists, and the like. And as I got more and more into the research, I needed to look at where a lot of this data was originating and who else was using it. And so that very clearly pointed me into the directions of some companies, particularly some social media firms, and seeing how they are using and often misusing the data of the general public and what its nexus was to criminal organizations. And the long and short of it is is that all this data that we are producing eventually leaks. Most of your listeners certainly will be familiar with Moore's Law. And uh, in the book, I decided to create my own law, which I jokingly call Goodman's Law. And Goodman's Law states that the more data that you're willing to produce, the more organized crime is willing to consume. And for most people, a lot of that data is produced via their social media streams or GPS locations and the like. And so many people really don't understand the dynamics of why Facebook is so-called free or why some of the other social media tools are free. And, you know, it's the business model of those companies 
to take the data that you provide them wittingly and then other data that they're able to deduce or gather through your camera, your microphone on your telephone, your GPS, your accelerometer, all these various data points and parse it and divide it into small little groups that they can sell at the highest rate to advertisers. So that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is how much of your social media data leaks to criminals. Uh, I point out in the book that Facebook, according to its own statistics, has 600,000 accounts compromised on a daily basis. So for a lot of these cyber threats, I had to go back to the data and see how does this data end up in the hands of organized crime and others. And much of that data will leak from third-party aggregators. Well, yeah, I mean, to take one example that I I found just incredibly sleazy, you talk about how the dating site OkCupid when you, you fill out this data, this very personal data, like, do you want to have kids or, you know, how often do you drink or whatever, they're actually taking that and selling it to companies that are going to pass it on to potential employers and the government. Uh, that, that, that's yeah. their business model. That's exactly right. So there's so many uh, stories in the book that kind of touch on this. But the one that you just talked about for OkCupid is a great example. You know, let's start with kind of two of the big problems with this whole data sphere. And that has to do with free, I'm I'm putting up my fingers in air quotes, and uh, terms of service. So, you know, everybody thinks the internet is free, Facebook is free, Words with Friends are free, Angry Birds are free, Gmail is free, but they don't realize none of it is free, of course. You're paying with your data, you're paying with your privacy. And when you look at it, at the end of the day, there have been many studies done, but Facebook makes on average between six and $14 a year on on the average American, that's how much they're able to monetize them for for selling off their data. And in order to do that, they slice you and dice you and gather in all these different ways. Um, but free actually is you know a very expensive price at the end of the day. And I personally would just rather give Facebook ten bucks and say you know please I'd like to keep my privacy. Here's ten bucks. Thanks for your awesome service. And so they do this and they get away with all this stuff through their terms of service, which are ever-growing, and I kind of jokingly call terms of abuse in the book. But back to OkCupid. So what they were doing is they were asking people to fill out dating profiles, and exactly as you pointed out, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? Uh, Do you like to drink? But then they got into much more personal stuff about do you like sex? How much sex do you have with how many people, sexual orientation? And they even got into drug use. Do you use cocaine? How often do you use cocaine, et cetera? And people, you know, that are filling out a dating profile may think to themselves, oh, yeah, I use cocaine on the weekend or I like using, you know, um, math or whatever it may be. And so I want to find somebody else who also enjoys math or ecstasy, et cetera. So it makes sense. It's logical. I want to date somebody with similar, you know, drug habits to myself. But what they don't realize is, is that the minute they say yes, that they use cocaine or meth or ecstasy, OkCupid was dropping a cookie on their hard drive and taking that data and selling it on to third parties. And by the way, we found out about this through a researcher who's now at the Federal Trade Communication, and he pointed this whole thing out, did the data, did the research. And so they would drop a cookie, sell your admitted narcotics use onto third-party companies, dozens of them. And those third-party companies are hired by employers to do background checks. So you may apply for a job at a company, mysteriously don't get the job, and you'll never know that it was because OkCupid passed along that data point to an entirely unregulated data broker industry, multi-billion dollar industry that parsed that. Oh, and by the way, of course, they can sell that data to your government. And by the way, if you happen to get into a DUI or a car accident, don't be surprised if somebody, you know, subpoenas your admitted cocaine use down the line, something that you said you did in an OkCupid profile. And people think, well, I don't use my real name in OkCupid and a lot of these other sites, but there are dozens of companies that do data de-anonymization and are very, very clear that, you know, even though your screen name may be Charlie1234 in San Francisco, everybody can work backwards from there and figure out exactly who you are based upon your IP address, your MAC address, and other data that these folks gather. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you mentioned the terms of service, and I want to touch on that because, I mean, I'm a writer, uh, a lot of our listeners are writers. And you mentioned this this thing that, the according to the Google terms of service, you say that if J.K. Rowling had written the Harry Potter books, had composed them in Google Docs, that Google would own 
all the rights to all those books? Well, that's what Google asserts, and that's what you agree to when you sign up. So I'll talk about terms of service, and we'll talk specifically about that example. So, you know, I have read and agreed to the terms of service is the biggest lie on the internet, right? We all click that. We all say yes, but none of us read it. You know, Facebook's terms of service, when they started out, were 1,000 words. They're now at 9,000 words. The U.S. Constitution, by comparison, is only 4,400 words. The largest terms of service in the industry are PayPal's. Those are 36,000 words, and Shakespeare's Hamlet was only 32,000 words. So if you added up all the terms of service that the average American came up against on an annual basis, it would take us 78 days reading around the clock to read through all these terms of service. So they're not really terms of service. They're terms of abuse. They tell you all the different ways the companies can use you, slice you, dice you, monetize you, and take advantage of you for both free and paid services, by the way. Even now when you sign up with a cable company, when you get a cell phone from AT&T, they are using all of this data to monetize you beyond the basic account. So the $100 you pay AT&T, you know, for your cell phone service isn't enough. They take all that cell phone traffic, who you're dialing, what you're surfing for on your cell phone, and they're selling that to third parties to further monetize you. So your cell phone service should be an awful lot cheaper because whether or not you realize it, they are copying that data and selling it off to third parties. Back to J.K. Rowling, when you sign up for Google for any of their services, whether it be Google Voice or, you know, Gmail, which is, you know, an awesome program. All of these tools are awesome, but you have to sign a waiver that says, I hereby grant Google authority to be able to read all my email, to reproduce, to copy, to translate, to perform, uh, to dramatize in this medium or any medium to ever be discovered now and forever. So what that means is if you read closely the terms of service that you know you click on with Google as but one example, when you use Google Docs to write up your story, to write your play, to do whatever, to draw your art, Google has claimed and you have agreed to grant them a you know unlimited license to use that data for them to monetize it. So yeah, I pointed out rightly that at J.K. Rowling written her books in Google Doc as opposed to, you know, Microsoft Word, then in theory she would have granted Google the global license for her $15 billion empire. I mean, would that be I mean, I studied law as an undergrad and there was this idea of conscionability in adhesion contracts, which is what these terms of service are, I think. I mean, would a court actually enforce something so plainly unfair? Uh, in yeah, practice? well, it's it's a great question, and it's one that people don't ask enough. And I looked at that very exact question when I was researching this book, and what I found is that the law is all over the place. So in some cases, they are found to be contracts of adhesion and non-enforceable, but on many, many other occasions, they have been found completely legal. This goes back to the old you know, software shrink wrap by opening up the little package that, you know, the CD or DVD disc came in, you know, you agree to all of this stuff. So uh, more often than not, these contracts have been upheld. And while Google has not specifically asserted those rights, and I don't know specifically how that would play out in court, there are many companies with similar terms of service um, that have had them upheld. And just to show how ridiculous these whole terms of service are, I mentioned in the book an experiment done by a British uh, gaming company called GameStop in the UK. And I think it was for Halloween, they updated their terms of service just to see if anybody ever read them and what they put in there. They put in some language in the middle of the terms of services that says, by clicking here, I agree to grant GameStop possession eternally of my immortal soul now and forever that GameStop will own my soul. And I think 1,700 people that bought stuff on the website that day agreed to it. So it's clear that people are not reading these terms of service. Right. And I mean, you know, if you go to McDonald's or something, they can't just put a sticker on the door that says, by opening this door, you agree that if a member of your family dies of salmonella from improperly handled food, we're not responsible for it, right? I mean, why is a software company allowed to do that? I agree. And that's one of the basic questions I ask in future crimes, right? If you went ahead and bought a Ford and, you know, every three feet it stalled or every three feet it exploded or crashed, clearly, you know, the courts would not allow Ford to get away with that. But these companies do get away with it. By the way, I will 
say actually there is a trend. You you mentioned McDonald's. There is a trend completely in the wrong direction about this. And there was a great example at a company uh, called Nordstrom's, the upper scale uh, department store. They started monitoring their customers inside their department stores. So you know, most folks today will have smartphones and most smartphones have got Wi-Fi and most people leave their Wi-Fi wide open through all the time. They just leave the port open and the Wi-Fi running, which leaks the MAC address, uh, you know, the on the phone, which is a unique identifier. Nordstrom's wanted to more precisely track their customers inside the store so they could know how much time are you spending in shoes or dresses or ladies' underwear or towels and sheets. And they were doing micro geolocation of the customers inside the Target store. And so Target told their customers that they were doing this by placing a six-inch sign at the mall entrance in a way that nobody would ever, ever notice it. So sort of shrink wrap is coming to real space. Nordstrom put this six-inch sign with teeny little letters on it that said, hey, in an effort to serve Nordstrom's customers better, which is always the clue, right? Anybody, anytime somebody tells me, in order to serve you better, we're, we're going to do this, I know to look out. So Nordstrom posted the sign that said, in order to serve our customers better, we will now begin tracking your location inside our stores via your mobile phone and your Wi-Fi. If you do not wish to participate in this project, either turn off your phone before coming in our store or don't come in the store. And so therefore, merely by walking into a Nordstrom store, you have acceded to Nordstrom's new terms and service. So people refer to this as the cookieing of the street, where all of the cookies that we've had to deal with in virtual space are now increasingly coming into physical space, which is a whole thing I talk about in future crimes and what the downsides of that are. Well, yeah, and speaking of of uh, sort of geotagging and tracking your location, I mean, you mentioned some really horrifying ways in which criminals can take advantage of that information. I mean, two examples you give are that uh, you might take a picture of your kids and you don't know that it has the the location sort of embedded in the file where it was taken, and, and a pedophile could just look at that, could analyze that photo and identify where you live uh, and target that uh, child. And another example you give is that you say that domestic violence shelters now tell women to uh, remove the batteries from their phones because their abusive uh, spouse could track them down uh, and and have in the past done that uh, to that location. Yeah, there have been lots of examples of that sort of locational threat data leaking. You talked about the pedophile one. There have been plenty of those there. Certainly in the case of domestic violence, as you point out, not only do they tell folks to take the battery off, but they actually confiscate their phones when they go into women's shelters. Many of these women's shelters are in sort of private locations to prevent those that are committing domestic abuse from finding their victims. And so now they take those phones away. They don't even permit them in their locations. And even burglars are using it too. You know, people have posted pictures of their stereo systems and high-end stereos on Craigslist and place like that. And the geotagging data will be hidden in those photos and burglars are showing up and ripping people off based upon the geolocation data embedded in there. And even soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan that were taking pictures, you know, our own soldiers were taking pictures and posting them online. And I tell the story of a Taliban attack where they actually were able to blow up a bunch of Apache helicopters that were just delivered because the GPS coordinates of the photographs posted by the soldiers on the base leaked the location of the secret base. And I mean, you, you talk about too, I mean, I, I guess I had some vague sense that it was possible to hack into your computer and, and look out through your camera, but I guess I had the sense that this was sort of difficult and no one would be particularly interested in watching me. But you, you talk about how it, it sounds like it's just incredibly easy. You should just basically assume any camera or mic- microphone you own is recording you. And that I guess there's some there are websites where it's just like dozens of people who are being recorded 24-7 that you can just watch, uh, you know, uh, sort of voyeur cams that they don't know that they're being recorded. Yeah, 100%. They're voyeur cams, stalker cams. And if you tune into these websites, you can see, you know, people changing in gymnasiums. You can see people in lawyers' offices. You can see detention cells at jails, dry cleaners, doctors' offices. So, you know, I forget the exact numbers, but something like, you know, all the cameras today, one way or the other, are pretty much connected to the Internet. And I think 40% of those camera systems don't have any password on them. And another 30% use the default password that is in the manual that you can Google and pulled up the PDF, you know, of the manual that's got the password in it. So it's incredibly easy to get access. 
not only do these cameras, you know, not have passwords, but even the ones that do are so easily hacked. And the big difference is, is that now those cameras can be hacked with packaged malware. So you don't need a master hacker that goes in every time and uniquely creates an account uh, or a software tool that will go ahead and break into somebody's camera. You can buy malware or crimeware, as I call it. This is software that goes out there and commits crime and will automatically hijack somebody's camera. That could be a baby camera. It could be a camera in somebody's home or on their laptop and mobile phone. And we saw this happen with Miss Teen America, a young woman, 16 years old, by the name of Cassidy Wolf. She was sitting in her bedroom looking at her laptop, and one day she got an email that contained over 100 pictures of her naked in her own bedroom and attached to the email was a threat. It said, hey, you have to have sex with me on camera, online, on video chat. Otherwise, I'm gonna post all these naked pictures of you on social media and send it out to your Facebook friends. Of course, she was horrified. She slammed closed her laptop. And fortunately, she told her parents who called in the FBI, they did an investigation into it and saw that the hack was carried out by one of her classmates, a 17-year-old kid. And this kid was not a master hacker. He just bought some cheap software online, sent her an email. She clicked on the wrong thing. And now he had installed keystroke loggers to her computer and took over her camera. And what most people don't realize about these camera hacks is that the little red light or the little green light that you expect to see go on when you're actually video recording, that can be disabled. So your cameras can be recording in the background all the time, even if the light isn't on. And you don't need to be a master hacker, just buy the criminal software that makes this possible. Yeah. And so I guess you're actually recommending people cover up their cameras with tape or something, right? Or I do. It can be a sticky, it can be a Band-Aid, it can be a piece of electrical tape. Of course, that doesn't prevent the microphone from recording. But, you know, if you are in the privacy of your own home, and in the case of Cassidy Wolf, she was not somebody who was like always naked in her bedroom. The camera caught her coming from her own bathroom, you know, coming out of the shower and changing in her own bedroom. So, uh, yes, just you can cover that up and you won't have to worry about that particular threat. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, I think it's bad enough that, you know, people can get access to your data. Um, but, you know, I guess you watch movies like uh, Die Hard or Mission Impossible or something, and people can, they can hack into traffic lights and prison cells and, uh, you know, air traffic control and, and all these things. And I, I think you tend to think, oh, that's just Hollywood. You can't really do that. But uh, apparently you, you actually can. Art imitating life, imitating art. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of examples of hacking critical information infrastructures in the book. And one of the things I did, you know, we talked earlier about the book and how, what is it future crimes, is, is today's crimes. So I started talking about today's crimes so that folks that weren't quite as technologically savvy could relate. So we started talking about, you know, Facebook and Google and those types of things. But as you fast forward to more advanced technologies, it is computers that run all of our critical infrastructures, whether it be the electrical grid, financial networks, ATMs, 911 dispatch systems, street lights, you know, uh, hospitals, electronic health records. Every single one of those is run by computers. And here's the startling fact. There's never been built a computer system that couldn't be hacked. So most folks, when they think of cyber threats, they think, oh, I was a victim of identity theft or I got a new credit card. Those, though they're very annoying and can really, you know, mess with somebody's life, that's kind of the low-hanging fruit out there. The bigger threats are against these advancing technologies and our critical infrastructure. So in future crimes, I tell the stories of hacking automobiles and hacking pacemakers and hacking streetcars and, you know, hacking air traffic control. And I actually give real-world examples where criminals or terrorists or hackers have done all of those things. Most folks don't realize the extent to which the whole world is becoming a computer, right? All physical objects in our space are dematerializing and being transformed into information technology. So we used to have paper maps. Now we have GPS. We used to have movies, you know, that were on film. Now we've got Netflix. We had music CDs. Now we've got, you know, Spotify and Pandora. And we're going to see that same thing that happened to the music and movies and maps coming to physical objects. So if you look at, you know, a 1965 Chevy or a Mustang, those were mechanical cars. But the cars today, any car that's roll off the assembly line, 
in the past few years has well over 200 chips in it, microchips of one sort or another. They control the radio, the GPS, the airbags, you know, the, um, the cruise control, all of that, the speedometer. It's all controlled by computer. Recently on 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl was in a car. They finally did a story on this. Even though I've been talking about this for years, they did a story on it. And, you know, Leslie Stahl's car was hacked. Somebody was able to slam on the acceleration, slam on the brake. So a car, a modern car, is not a mechanical device. It's a computer that we ride in. An elevator is a computer that we ride in. An airplane is a Solaris box that we fly in. All of these devices are hackable. And as we rush towards the Internet of Things and add 200 billion new devices by the year 2020, according to the Intel Computer Corp., all of those new devices are going to be hackable as well. Right. I mean, so, I mean, is there any role here for just going back to analog systems for certain things? I mean, like, does the door of a prison cell really need to be connected to the Internet? Right. Well, obviously, I talked about a prison, a high security prison in Miami being hacked and the hackers were able to open up the cell doors and the prisoners got out and gang gang riots ensued. So I agree with you. I think right now, before we go ahead and connect those 200 billion new devices, whether they be pets, prisoners, plates, cars, pacemakers, before we put these 200 billion devices online, we should stop and think about it. We can't even secure the stuff that we have online today, our iPads, our iPhones, our Android phones, our Game Boys, our Xboxes, all of that's hackable. And that stuff has more security than your you know, smart refrigerator will. So those smart, so-called smart devices are going to be wildly hackable. And I think it's worth asking the question, what should and should not be online? There is a movement amongst some companies to take certain things out of the electronic realm. So companies like Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC, and McDonald's, they have secret you know, recipes for both Coke and their fried chicken. Those are not stored in any electronic systems. Those are written down on a piece of paper and kept in a safe. And after the Snowden revelations, the Kremlin for their secret you know, communications in Moscow went back to typewriters, manual typewriters, not even electronic typewriters, but manual typewriters to type things. So I think you will see some stepping back away from this digital stuff. The question is, you know, not how do we stop all this technological progress, right? I, like most readers of Wired, am very pro-technology. I'm a technophile. I think it's awesome. All I'm saying is we need to give much more attention to how we're going to deal with the privacy issues that are emerging as well as the security issues. Yeah, yeah. And you also talk a lot in the book about biometrics, which is a really a fixture of science fiction. So retinal scanners and fingerprint scanners and all these sorts of things. And I, I'd never thought about this before, but you make the point that a fingerprint scanner has this really big drawback, which is that if somebody hacks it, if they get a copy of your fingerprint, you can't just change your fingerprint like you change your password. Yeah, exactly right. Somebody hacks your credit card, you get a new credit card. Somebody hacks your finger, you don't get a new finger. And because of all the science fiction depictions, whether it be in Mission Impossible or other stories where, you know, you pulled your eye up against the retina scan or the iris scan, and it, you know, picks you out of a billion people and lets you in. But what people forget about these fingerprint scanners is they're not storing your fingers. What they're doing is taking your fingerprint and doing a, you running it past an algorithm and creating a mathematical representation of your finger in a computer. And so it's just data in a computer like all other data in a computer. It can be manipulated. It can be hacked. So of course it can be deleted. It can be changed. Your fingerprints can be mixed up with somebody else's fingerprints. You know, I can take your fingerprints that show you're innocent and in the police department computer, you know, add a felony warrant to that as an example. And the data is leaking in really interesting ways in Israel. They had a national biometric database on their 9 million citizens and a uh, disgruntled insider went ahead, stole the entire national database and, you know, uh, hacked it and posted it online. So now the biometric details of 9 million, you know, Israeli citizens are available out there. And there are other ways that people are hacking biometrics, particularly with photography. Recently, a photograph was taken of Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, and uh, they were able to, just by the resolution of the photograph, have a perfect copy of her fingerprint. And other organizations are hacking fingerprints, most notoriously the Chaos Computer Club in Germany, a very long-standing and sophisticated hacking group. Um, they went ahead a few years ago, the German Minister of Justice, Minister of Interior over there, but kind of like the Attorney General 
here in the United States, he was pushing very hard for Germans to have biometric data on their national ID cards, and he wanted all Germans to be fingerprinted. And the Germans pushed back, and particularly, you know, uh, privacy advocates and those in the Chaos Computer Club. And so what they did is, when the German Minister of Justice was out at a restaurant, they went ahead, and after he left, they got hit the glass that he had left behind, and they were able to lift his fingerprint off of the glass. They then imported that. They took a photograph. They imported it, brought it into Photoshop, cleaned it up, and then were able to replicate it on um, 3D printers in latex. And so they had the German minister, Minister of Justice, fingerprint. They created a set of them, printed them on 3D printers in latex, and included it as a handout in their Chaos Computer Club magazine that went out to 5,000 people. And they encouraged their readers to leave the uh, justice minister's fingerprints at crime scenes all over Germany, which they did. So you can plant somebody else's fingerprints at the scene of a crime, and you can even do the same thing with their DNA. So these biometrics that are meant to be, you know, foolproof are just other computer data that can be hacked. Well, you mentioned 3D printing, and, and there's a lot of stuff about in the book about 3D printing narcotics and explosives and rocket launchers and even uranium centrifuges. I mean, it just sounds like all this stuff is just going to be completely out of control. Yeah, digital manufacturing, you know, it's awesome for lots and lots of different reasons. 3D printers, they now sell them at Staples, and while most people don't have them, you know, the same way most people didn't have laser printers or inkjet printers, you know, a few years ago, eventually they'll become quite standard. They'll be in our offices, they'll be in our homes, and many people will be using them for lots of amazing, you know, awesome tools, but of course they can be misused as well. And probably the most controversial has been the 3D printing of weapons, you know, through um, the DEFCAD project and others. Uh, these guys have been able to print everything from the lower receiver of an AR-15 to magazines, and now you can even 3D print bullets successfully. And as you mentioned, you know, with rocket launchers, as 3D printers get bigger, you can just print bigger and bigger different things. We've had criminals 3D printing handcuff keys. We've had people 3D printing police badges and all of the intellectual property theft that, you know, people had to worry about in the digital space with the stealing of music and videos, all of that is going to come to physical objects. So whether it's a Gucci purse or a Rolex watch, you know, just scan it with your connect and import it and then start printing the parts to make one and put it together a perfect replica. So we're going to see lots of challenges there. And, uh, you know, uh, you talked about uh, 3D printing narcotics or chem printers out there. So now we go to pharmacies, but in the future, you know, in the not too distant future, like maybe a decade out, there'll be printers that can print medicines and they already exist. They'll just become more commonplace then. And of course, if you can print medicine with a chem printer, then of course you can print illicit narcotics as well. So a lot of changes are afoot through digital manufacturing. And to, does law enforcement, do we have any strategy in mind to deal with people printing contraband out in the privacy of their own homes? You know, I'd like to say that they were thinking about it, and to some extent they could. You know, some contraband many people might not care about, right? We see this huge debate right now in the United States about marijuana, where some states are making it uh, completely legal, 100% uh, legal for any purpose. Others are making it legal for medicinal purposes. So, you know, there are, there are reasons uh, and debate, subject to debate as to whether or not it's a good or bad thing. But in terms of some of the other threats that are emerging in cyberspace, law enforcement, I'm afraid to say, is mostly left behind. And this is coming from somebody who spent a career in law enforcement. Fundamentally, the internet broke policing, right? Policing and crime used to be almost exclusively a local affair. So if somebody robbed a Bank of America in Midtown Manhattan, what would the cops know? Well, they knew the victim was in Midtown Manhattan because that's where the Bank of America is located. And they would know that the cops were located in Midtown Manhattan. So they might come from the Midtown South Precinct to investigate. They would know that the criminal was located in midtown Manhattan because that's where he or she robbed the bank. And maybe they left behind evidence, photographs, DNA, fingerprints on the counter. And so it all worked very, very nicely. You had the co-location of criminal, victim, and cops. The Internet completely broke that model that's worked well for a couple of centuries. Now, the criminal can be in Kiev or in Latvia or El Salvador or in Chicago, and they can hack somebody in Moscow or Moscow can hack New York 
And so international law does not allow freely for international policing. A Chicago cop cannot make an arrest in Moscow. A Miami cop can't make an arrest in Tokyo. And yet criminals from all of these locales can now plug in as if they were in midtown Manhattan, and they can carry out the very same bank robbery virtually. So it's not just whether or not the cops are keeping up. It's that the Internet fundamentally broke law enforcement because law enforcement does not work internationally by design. You wouldn't want a bunch of Russian cops kicking down your door, you know, in San Francisco with a search warrant and and taking away an American citizen. So we have a fundamental mismatch. And so one of the things that I mentioned in future crimes is that we actually may have the wrong paradigm for dealing with cyber threats, right? We will never arrest our way out of the cybercrime problem. And it may be the completely wrong methodology to think about it. When we talk about cyber threats, we use the language of medicine. We use the language of infections, you know, computer infections. We talk about computer viruses. So we use the language of medicine to describe the problem, but we don't use the tools of medicine to address the problem. And I think there's a huge opportunity there. What could we learn from the world of epidemiology, for example, or public health when it comes to these threats and imply better threat models in our response? So for example, if somebody has Ebola or measles, we don't go out there, like public health officials don't go out there and arrest them. They try to isolate the people that are sick so they don't infect other people. My goal should be not to arrest every hacker in the world. My goal should be to create a self-healing you know, immune system for the internet that even if a, a disease or a virus gets you know, created, that it won't be passed to me. And I think we need new institutions like a World Health Organization for Cyber that can help drive this, the concept of hygiene, right? No, we really don't know what cyber hygiene looks like, at least the general public don't. If you think about, you know, how we get trained as little kids, if you sneeze, you cover your mouth. And if you cover your mouth after you sneeze, you don't shake somebody's hand. That's hygiene, right? That's that's public health hygiene. But nobody knows really what that looks like in cyberspace. So we take USB thumb drives that we get at conferences and we plug them into our computer and your computer and we spread viruses this way. We open up attachments and downloads and forward them on to our friends and post them on social media. Our own computers get ensnared in botnets and we're part of the problem but people don't know how to protect against it. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity for both public health and education to help reduce these threats. Right. Do you think there's any sort of role for AI in this? Because, I mean, it just seems like, shouldn't your computer be smart enough to know that by opening up this attachment, you don't want this gigantic program running and erasing all your data? Or, you know, does, should a water treatment plant know that it shouldn't be taking directions from someone in China, even if they do have the password? Yeah, I totally agree. And you're right. There is a ton of work going on in the field of applying AI to some of these cyber threats. But the challenge is right now software is built kind of with two purposes. One is um, uh, you want it to run, right? So you want it to run. You want the default answer to be yes. You want the car to go, if you will. And so even though the software is super buggy, it's incredibly difficult to foresee all of these different threats. I agree in the future with AI, machine learning, and the like, we could do tremendous Um, advances in this field. And there are lots of researchers, including DARPA, that are looking at this, but we're nowhere near that now. And what we see is actually the opposite, is that the bad guys are using AI and machine learning to script their attacks way faster and at scale in a way that the good guys have not scripted and automated their defenses. Right. Well, and speaking of AI, there's this fascinating thing in the book where there was this guy, he murdered his roommate, and, yes. and when they caught him, they checked his phone and he had asked Surrey, he says, I need to hide my roommate. And Surrey had replied, swamps, reservoirs, metal foundries and dumps. Uh, I mean, absolutely. So that's that, the point that I was making in that section of future crimes, because I was talking about AI and next generation threats is that, you know, the future is already here. To quote William Gibson from Neuromancer, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. We've had people like. Bill Gates and Elon Musk and uh, Stephen Hawking talk about their, you know, severe concerns about artificial general intelligence. And I also share some of those concerns. But even before we get to the time of AGI, we have some serious risks uh, emerging from narrow AI, you know, the type of AI that 
recommends how you drive from point A to point B. The AI that is doing the majority of the trading on Wall Street, not carried out by human beings, but by algorithms and bots. And even, you know, low-level criminals like an 18-year-old kid at the University of Florida, when he needed to figure out where to hide a dead body, when he was looking for a co-conspirator in his crime, an accomplice to help him, he turned to Siri. So, of course, 18-year-olds today would turn to a tool like that because it's perfectly natural for them. And Siri, because, you know, she does not have an ethics engine, but her doesn't, you know, have that built in, just provided the answer, you know, swamps, reservoirs, and foundries. Right, right. And these AI things, you can uh, copy them endless times. So you can have essentially like billions of grifters out on the Internet all uh, scamming people at once. Well, that's already going on, and that's a huge problem. And I guess if I were to say what is one of the big takeaways from future crimes is that it's not people that's committing the crime anymore. Crime has become software. It's crime where you used to need to be a master hacker. You need to be very familiar, you know, programming languages and know your way around Internet protocols to break into all of these systems. Now you don't. Master hackers have created software that they are selling to lower-level criminals that can do all of this in the background. The reason why we've gone from robbing one-on-one person, one person robbing one person one-on-one, you know, in street robberies to somebody in the target hack, robbing over 100 million people or breaking into 100 million accounts is because crime scales and it scales exponentially. So, you know, a DDoS attack is just scripted. It's the computer that's carrying it out. And we're seeing more and more sophisticated crimes being scripted and carried out like ransom and hijacking. Uh, There's a concept in, you know, malware known as ransomware. And these are bits of malware that get on your computer and encrypt your hard drive with a private key and then hold your computer for ransom. And you're given like 48 hours to pay the ransom in Bitcoin. And if you don't, you lose all the data in your computer and the private key is destroyed. So even sophisticated crimes like ransoming are now being scripted. Blackmail has been scripted. So all of it is becoming an algorithm. And we've built the crime bots or the bad guys have built the crime bots. As you pointed out earlier, we haven't built the cop bots. There aren't cop bots to battle the crime bots yet. And even though you know it looks great on TV with Minority Report, the reality is, you know, law enforcement, government, we are far behind in defending against these threats, as are many companies and individuals. Right. And, and the bots you're talking about are, are, are computer virus type bots, but there's no reason these couldn't be physical bots as well. Like uh, you talk about drones armed with guns or, you know, uh, self-driving trucks armed with bombs, things like that. I mean, you know, this sort of um, exponential increase of the threat applies to the physical world as well as the digital world. Exactly. I mean, I say it in the book, cybercrime is going 3D. Right now, we've only had to worry about hacks that were behind two-dimensional screens. Somebody moves some bits and you lose money from your bank account. They take over your identity. They take over your credit card. This is the thing that I think the general public misses about the cyber threat, which is that we are just in the earliest seconds of the earliest minutes of the earliest hours of this technological revolution. We look around us and we see, you know, Xboxes and GPS devices and smart TVs and Nest thermostats, and we think, wow, we're at the pinnacle of technology. But with Moore's Law and the Internet of Things, we're just about to hit the knee of the curve, right? This Internet is going to grow in size from a metaphorical golf ball to the size of the sun with Internet Protocol version 6. We're just at the earliest days, and one of the things that will come out of this are computers that used to be static devices that sat on your desk or in your pocket. Soon, they're going to learn to walk and crawl and fly and swim and roll. And we already have robots that are used extensively in you know, the manufacturing process, like in automobile manufacturing. And we have tons of robots that are used on the battlefield in the war space. But we're starting to see them come into the home, whether it be you know, our Roomba vacuums or home health care bots that are taking care of elderly people. Robots are going to be everywhere. But robots are just computers that walk or roll or fly. And like all other computers, they are hackable. And we've seen robots hacked on many occasions before. We've had, you know, drones flying over Afghanistan that the Taliban hacked the video feeds on. We've had a DHS drone on the southern border of the United States 
flying between Texas and Mexico that a bunch of students from UT Texas were able to commandeer the GPS on and hack. So, of course, these devices will be used to hack us, except the difference between hacking a two-dimensional computer and a three-dimensional computer is a three-dimensional computer can kick and punch and drag and lift and have superhuman strength, and we're completely unprepared for that. Well, yeah, I mean, one uh, one possible solution or one you know, semi-solution you mentioned in the book that I thought was interesting is, is you say we have this problem of a digital monoculture where all this, the devices are all running the same software. And so once somebody writes a virus for that software, it infects millions of different devices. Is that how, I mean, should we all be using, should there be a hundred different operating systems for people to choose from so that it limits the damage whenever a security flaw in one of them is discovered? Yeah, that concept of monoculture is really important. And it goes back to, you know, what I was saying earlier about epidemiology and public health is if there's just, you know, one type of computing system, let's say, you know, Windows 7, um, it was behoove hackers and virus writers to write. If 99% of the public is on Windows 7, then of course they're going to write their viruses for Windows 7. And we saw in the early days of the Windows OS with Windows 95 and XP and all of that, almost all of the threats were against those Windows devices because they were the predominant one. So if I need to go ahead and invest my hacker dollars, time, energy, and effort, I'm going to go after the biggest bang for the buck. This is where the misconception that Macs are not hackable came from. It wasn't that Macs aren't hackable. It's that why would I, as a you know master hacker, spend my time on 0.01% of the market? Right, I would rather get a bigger bang for the buck. But as um, Mac OS has increased significantly in market share, particularly on the iOS, you know, mobile front, we're seeing increasingly hackers are developing malware against those tools. And since we were just talking about robotics, one of the things that has protected the global information grid, our critical infrastructures, and even robotics from being hacked is that most of those times, those operating systems were completely unique. So the way, you know, the software that Con Ed might have used to protect and run the electricity grid in the city of New York was different from what PG&E used to protect the electrical grid and run it in San Francisco. Um, But now with standardization, it becomes possible to hack more things. And up until this point, there really hasn't been a standard robotic operating system. But now one is emerging. It's called ROS you know, the robotic operating system. And so now you can just create an attack that could impact a whole bunch of robots. And I mean, so so is there any sort of effort toward diversifying the operating systems or? I, I'm Not that I'm aware of on a mass scale. I've seen individuals use it. I know people that use Linux, you know, for this exact reason or use particular flavors of Linux uh, for this purpose. So I haven't seen any mass scale intent to do this, no. Uh, you also another sort of uh, ray of hope you offer in this book is this idea of crowdsourcing uh, crime fighting. That rather than relying on the police exclusively, we would just draw on the power of these millions of citizens who want to do the right thing and would just uh, help help fight crime. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a tremendous opportunity in future crimes. I tell story after story of how criminals and even terrorists are crowdsourcing their attacks. So uh, they're just. So many examples, whether it was a crowdsourced bank robbery uh, that took place in Seattle or other types of crowdsourced ATM heists that I tell where criminals were able to break into the debit card network, you know, these debit cards, prepaid cards that normally have a 50 or $100 limit. The hackers in Eastern Europe were able to remove those limits. And so they had debit cards, which should have had like a $25 limit, which had no limit. And they were able to send them to organized crime groups in 27 different countries. And they spread them amongst all these low-level thieves that all at once crowdsourced attack against ATMs. And they hit up as many ATMs as they could in a 10-hour period. And they carried out 36,000 transactions. So by crowdsourcing the ATM heist, the criminal masterminds back in Russia were able to get a crowd of criminals to carry out 36,000 transactions in 10 hours in 27 countries. And they walked away with $45 million, 45 million bucks. So the bad guys definitely understand how to leverage crowdsourcing, and they're even using crowdfunding techniques, which I describe in the books. The challenge is, is that we haven't done a particularly great job of leveraging crowdsourcing for public good. If you think about it, crowdsourcing has kind of been an element of law enforcement, 
you know, since the beginning, if you go back to the 1850s, right, there were wanted posters in the post office. You know, we're looking for Dillinger and U.S. Marshals, Texas Ranger offering a reward. So we've done that at some level and we've had neighborhood watch programs. But the Internet creates the opportunity, uh, as we saw with Serial. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the podcast, right? But with the Serial podcast, you can get tens of thousands of people investigating cases. You can get tens of thousands of people involved in the identification of malware. One thing I call for in future crimes is the involvement of the gamer community in helping us protect our security, right? What if instead of playing Angry Birds or Words with Friends or even, you know, a first-person shooter game, as people were going through the games, they were actually, you know, shooting malware or they were destroying phishing attacks or identifying spear phishing attacks through the playing of a game. Think about all that, you know, resource that could be driven towards this problem. So I think we definitely need to be crowdsourcing our security. We have, you know, Reserve Army, Reserve Marine Corps. We have Reserve Police Officers. We even have FEMA that deals with natural disasters. But we don't have any entity that is a crowdsourced approach to cybersecurity. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity to take people of technological skill, whether it be, you know, a 10-year-old kid in India in Chennai or an 80-year-old woman, you know, in Seattle and get these people involved in this fight. I think that would be awesome. And it's, I think, the only way that we're going to move forward and win this battle. I, I like that example of the serial podcast, that we need to leverage the massive power of podcasting for good. I like that idea. There you go. I, I think a podcaster might like that. <laughs> Um, okay, so I, I mean, this book, you know, scared the hell out of me. And I would imagine it's scaring the hell out of a lot of people who are reading it. Are you getting reactions? Is that, do you get a sense that people are, are taking this book seriously and are formulating uh, a response to it? So, I mean, it's we've thankfully had a wonderful reception. Future Crimes just hit number three on the New York Times bestseller list for uh, hardcover nonfiction. I was thrilled with that. And I'm so deeply grateful to all the folks who, who bought the book and are reading it. And I think it's getting some place certainly in the press as well as I, in government as well. I've been contacted by a number of government leaders who are looking at it. The good news is, you know, you said future crimes is scary. What I'm trying to do is point out the cutting edge of criminal innovation and how everybody from criminals, organized crime, terrorists, hacktivists, and even governments and corporations are using technology against you and the general public in ways that they don't understand. My goal is not to scare. My goal is to educate. And by sharing stories from the cutting edge of science and crime, then people can get a feel for what's going on. And then they can empower themselves because knowledge is power. It's better to understand the risks and the threats so people can protect themselves. In the last few chapters of Future Crimes, I put out a whole bunch of technology, public policy, you know, legal, regulatory uh, recommendations out there to create new organizations. You know, I call for Manhattan Project for Cyber, an X Prize for Cybersecurity. All these, you know, kind of big think issues that we can take on to make a really dramatic difference. And then, as I mentioned, I've also included practical tips for individuals and businesses, you know, six steps that people can take to protect themselves from cyber threats and reduce their cyber risk by 85%. So it's an interesting ride. It sounds like science fiction, but indeed it's science fact. It's kind of notes from the cutting edge of crime. And by understanding it, then we can begin to make the changes we need so that we can leverage these awesome technologies that we all love to the benefit of the majority of humanity and make sure that they're not used against us. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned science fiction. I mentioned this is a show for science fiction fans. I'm just sort of curious, uh, are you a big science fiction fan? And did science fiction inform your thinking on these issues in any way? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I like science fiction very, very much. And you know, whether it be Minority Report or The Terminator or even some of the classics, you know, I've got Azima's Three Laws of Robotics and talk about that as a starting off point. I've got Minority Report. And I myself, you know, got introduced to this whole world of hacking through, uh, you know, film, you know, war games and uh, sneakers and a lot of other pictures that came out that talk about uh, some of these threats. So, yeah, and they've been very far ahead. And in fact, science fiction has been very prescient about some of these risks and some of these threats. So a lot of stuff that's been shown in those films and in those works of science fiction in the past have very much come true today. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, in, in the acknowledgments, you mentioned two science fiction authors, Daniel Suarez and Ramez Nam. Uh, yes. sort of what did they contribute? Well, first, they're just generally awesome people. And I, I'm 
deeply, deeply lucky to call both of them friends. Uh, Daniel Suarez, I read Damon and really, really loved it. And I've also read, you know, the other books by Ramez. Ramez teaches with me at Singularity University. Uh, and we also had Daniel Suarez come by and teach at Singularity University. Uh, and both of them experienced authors when I was researching and working on my book. They both were extremely generous and met with me. We talked about some of these themes. We talked through them and just, you know, gave me a lot of good advice for a first-time author. And so I'm very, very appreciative of what they did. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to say a bit more about Singularity University? You're also involved with something called the Future Crimes Institute. Do you just want to let people know about those and where they can find more information? Sure. So I'll start with Singularity University. Singularity University, you can get more info at singularityu.org. It was created back in 2010, uh, co-founded by NASA, Google, Autodesk, uh, Kaufman Foundation, Nokia, and a bunch of other companies. It's housed on the campus of the NASA Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley in Mountain View. And the school has but one mission which is to teach students about exponential technologies, robotics, artificial intelligence, nanotech, big data, internet of things, and AI, amongst others, and make sure that our students take those tools, those exponential technologies, with the mission of positively affecting the lives of a billion people over the next 10 years. So that's what we want our students to do, to take drones and not just use them, you know, uh, as weapons, but use drones to deliver food to Africa, to deliver medicine to isolated villages that don't have access to a doctor or advanced medical techniques as but one example. So really great stuff there. Amazing faculty. We have astronauts and roboticists and big data scientists and physicians on staff. And uh, there's a bunch of free videos online for Singularity U. If you haven't checked them out, feel free to stop by. We also run executive programs too, which are proven really, really popular. And we have students from all over the world that partake in that. And the Future Crimes Institute? The Future Crimes Institute was something I founded back, I think, in 2010. And the goal of that was to unite technologists and those working in criminal justice and bring them together to discuss these emerging threats. So it's a virtual institute. It's online. We have about 3,500 members, some of them from top, top name companies, chief security officers from companies your listenership would be very, very uh, well familiar with, as well as senior leadership from FBI, Scotland Yard, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And what we do is just discuss these threats and figure out ways that we can respond to avoid them in the future and conduct individual research on everything from, you know, security threats of virtual reality and augmented reality to, you know, hacking 3D printers and the like. So that's the Future Crimes Institute. All right, great. So unfortunately, we're all out of time. Uh, just finally, are there any other projects you want to mention? Any websites you want to give people? Just anything else you want to mention? Sure. If folks want to learn more about the book, they can stop by futurecrimes.com. One of the interesting things there is a sign-up. And if you sign up, I can send you an infographic, which I've created, that specifically lists six steps that everybody can take to reduce their cybersecurity risk by 85%. That's the update protocol. Uh, the book, Future Crimes, is on sale. You can pick it up at stores or any place online. Feel free to rate it. I love it. And if you guys would do that, and uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Uh, Wired is a great magazine, and uh, I love it. I've written for Wired UK before, and just a great audience. So I'm glad to have the opportunity to discuss these topics with you today, and thank you for your time. Oh, and thank you so much, Mark. Yes, we've been speaking with Mark Goodman. This book is called Future Crimes. It's really, it's a book everyone has to read. It's, uh, there's tons of stuff we didn't even get a chance to talk about that you really need to know about. So many just important things. It's a really important book. And so, Mark, just thank you so much for joining us. The pleasure was mine. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Mark Goodman for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes including Ismail Schonhorst in Brazil and Sarah Derrick in Canada. Ismail calls the show one of the greatest services to mankind on the internet. And Sarah Derrick writes, I started listening to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast a few months ago, and I recently went back to listen to some of the older podcasts. I just finished listening to number 42, celebrating the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which, as the name of the podcast suggests, was obviously a huge influence on the creators. And it was so wonderful to listen to people who have had such similar life experiences to myself, 
who love the same kinds of things I love, and to discuss them knowledgeably and without rancor or ridicule. It reminds me of sitting down with a favorite book or favorite comfort food on a rainy day. Thank you for providing a wonderful listening experience, and I hope you receive enough donations on Patreon to keep going. So big thanks again to Ismail Seanhorst and Sarah Derrick for those great reviews. And like Sarah Derrick, I also hope we get enough donations on Patreon to keep going. And we moved a bit closer to that goal this week thanks to listeners such as Kirsten Osborne and Lathrop Preston, who helped bring our Patreon total up to $180.14 per episode. And remember that if we hit $250 per episode, that'll guarantee that the show continues through the end of 2015. And if we hit $400 per episode, that'll guarantee that the show continues through June of 2016. So if you're looking forward to a year or more of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. So that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot geeks. And if you'd prefer to send us a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Oz Penguin, who just gave us a very generous $100 contribution. Special thanks as well to Ian Morrison, who just gave us a $25 contribution, and Edwin Metzelar, who just gave us a $20 contribution. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. I also want to mention that this week we're having a fundraiser for Alpha, a summer workshop for writers ages 14 to 19. I've been on the staff of Alpha for the past 10 years, and like everyone on the staff, I'm a volunteer. Even so, the cost of running the workshop, paying for food, housing, and classroom space, is significant, and not every student can afford the tuition. A successful $5,000 fundraiser will help ensure that no students are declined simply because they can't afford it. Many Alpha grads go on to successful writing careers, and a few have even appeared on this show, including Seth Dickinson in episode 53, Sarah Brand in episode 61, and Kate Matthews in episode 91. So if you want to help support the next generation of writers, please head on over to alpha.spellcaster.org donate. So that's alpha.spellcaster.org donate. Thanks. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.